Hello, everyone. This is the Not So Grateful Dead podcast. Whoop, whoop. I'm Grayson Decker. It's so lovely to meet you. I'm so excited that you're here. Today, we're going to be covering a wrongful conviction case that involves a lot of racial issues, bad things, false informant testimonies, and obviously murder. So, but before we get into that, I'm going to do a little introduction of who I am so that you know who is behind the microphone because I feel like you deserve to know that. As previously stated, I am Grayson. I'm 22 as of today, which is so exciting. I have three fur children, Justin, Maggie, and Olive. Two of them are pit mixes, Justin and Maggie, and then I believe Olive is a mini pincher, maybe. Uh, and then I have a wonderful husband, Creighton, who's going to be helping a lot with this. He's so amazing and wonderful, believes in me, which is great. He's going to be adding some commentary into some of the episodes, maybe asking me some questions, which I think will be really cool because he is not really a true crime fanatic like all of us probably are, which, yeah, I'm just excited. It's going to be a very different perspective and he can ask some interesting questions. A little bit more about me. I went to the University of Central Oklahoma for almost four years. I did not graduate. I was majoring in psychology and forensics because you have to double major when you go to UCO if you major in forensics. So I was taking psychology, but it took me a lot of time to get to the point of knowing what I wanted to do with my second major. And so I was very behind and I am lacking 50 hours in psychology, but one hour in forensics. So I cannot obtain said forensics degree until I finish 50 hours of psychology, which I don't want to pay for. Not in this economy. Not right now. So I decided I was going to share my knowledge in a different way, which is through this podcast. And I'm so excited. I got to take a lot of cool classes while attending UCO. And I learned a lot of things about forensic and the methodology of things. So I'm very excited to share all of that information with you guys. Uh, yeah, I think that's about it. I am so excited that you're here. Let's get into it. All right, you guys. So today we're going to be covering the case of Paul Howell and the wrongful conviction of Julius Jones. Because the case is kind of more geared towards the wrongful conviction of Julius Jones, I'm gonna give a little bit of background information about who he was and kind of why he was wrongfully convicted in this case. So, he was born on July 25th, 1980 in Oklahoma to Madeline Davis Jones. He was a middle child in his family with an older brother, Antonio, and a younger sister, Antoinette. And he attended the John Marshall High School in Oklahoma City. And he actually graduated in the top 10% of his class from there. And he was about to actually head back to his second semester at OU, the University of Oklahoma, when the story kind of takes place. And he was actually attending the University of Oklahoma on an academic scholarship because he did so well in high school. His parents, his mom was a teacher, which she was pretty hard on her kids about grades. I feel like that's just instilled in a teacher to want your children to do well in school. But his dad was actually harder on them about their grades, and he was a construction worker. Julius was a football and basketball star, and his dad coached him and taught him everything that he knew, basically about sports and life. They were very good companions, and I would say that his dad had a pretty big impact on his life and who he turned out to be. 
Okay guys, so we're going to get into the timeline of things and I'm going to preface this by saying that I will be telling this story from Julius's perspective, not the way that it was portrayed through the media during the time that this case actually unraveled and I just think that that's the way it needs to be because he was wrongfully convicted in this case and that's just not fair and his story deserves to be heard and told. So, we're going to begin at 9.27 p.m. Wednesday, July 28th, 1999. Julius is at his parents' home that evening eating some spaghetti that his mom had made for all of them, and he's playing Monopoly with his brother Antonio and his sister Antoinette. So, it's very chill, just family night, and he's just having a good time playing Monopoly. And around 9.30, his mom kind of starts telling Antonio it's time for us to leave because his shift at his job began at 10 p.m. and she's going to be driving him. And a little after 9.30 in Edmond, Oklahoma, 21 miles away from the Jones residence at 727 East Drive, Paul Howell, who is a very well-known businessman in Oklahoma, he's a deacon, he's a father of two, He's very loved by the community in Edmond, just very well known. He is a pretty big public figure. He is shot twice in his father's driveway, and this actually happens in front of his two daughters, who are Abby, and she was seven at the time, and Rachel, who was nine at the time. And the other person that was there was Megan Toby, who was his sister, and they had just gotten home from taking his daughters out to get some school supplies for the upcoming school year, and they had also stopped at Brahms for some ice cream. Him and his daughters had been living there at the time, which is why this occurred in his father's driveway, and Paul Howell actually did die four hours after the shooting occurred, unfortunately, but at around 9.47 p.m., before he actually is pronounced dead, his father makes a call to the Edmond police and is explaining the situation. He doesn't really know what happened. He was in his house asleep, but his daughter came in and explained that Paul Howe had just been shot in the driveway and they needed somebody there ASAP. So once police got there, you know, they take the statements and stuff. And as previously stated, his sister Megan Toby was someone there who was like at the scene when the crime occurred. And she was actually the only eyewitness and she gave the only eyewitness statement. So she stated that the shooter was an African-American male. He was wearing a white t-shirt. He had on a red bandana tied across his face so she could not see his face. And he had on a black stocking cap and about an inch to an inch and a half of hair sticking out from underneath the stocking cap. And that's very prevalent in this case. Keep that in mind, an inch to an inch and a half of hair. And she also was stating that the only thing that was taken from the scene was a GMC Suburban. They had the license plate for that and they also knew what color it was, make and model, all of the things. So they knew what they were looking for and who they were looking for. And... Back to Oklahoma City, 21 miles away from where the shooting of Paul Howell occurred. Julius's mother comes into the house around 10 p.m. after dropping Antonio off at work. And Julius had been waiting for her at the door that whole entire time that she was gone, basically, because his sister and his brother had eaten his dang birthday cookie. And he was absolutely pissed because how dare they leave him only with one slice? I would be so mad, too. I would also be waiting for my mom to tell her all about how they took my dang birthday cookie. So that is what happened. He was just sitting there waiting the whole entire time that this crime occurred. He was in Oklahoma City, 21 miles away. 
and was literally just waiting to complain to his mom about his stupid birthday cookie that he really wanted so badly and his sister and brother ate it which is not very nice if you ask me and so then from about that time until around 11:30, Julius stayed at his parents house he was hanging out with his mom and his sister just watching tv in the living room just having a good chill evening with his family And he was actually waiting on a ride back to his apartment that was right near the OU campus. And he was waiting for specifically Chris Jordan, also known as Westside, to come and pick him up to take him to his apartment. So finally, around 1130, a little bit after, Chris Jordan picks Julius up from his parents' house. And Julius is quite obviously like mad because he's been waiting there forever just trying to get this ride back to his apartment and Chris Jordan finally shows up at around 11:30 that night which is pretty late and so he asked him where the hell have you been and that's when Chris told him that he had gotten into it with somebody to which Julius asked okay who and then Chris says oh you don't know him eventually Chris basically just tells Julius that he went to go do something and something just didn't go right And he was kind of just saying, it's my business, you don't need to worry about it, and I don't want to talk about it. And that was basically the end of that night. Nothing really drastic or anything happens that evening. No major developments in the case. Then the next day, Thursday, July 29th, 1999, at 1.41 p.m., Liddell King, or Day Day, pays Julius. And this kind of struck him as odd because Julius had never really even talked to him, didn't really know him. He had only met him one time, and that was about a month and a half to two months prior to the day that he was paging him. And he was really just somebody that Chris Jordan had known, not Julius at all, and he didn't really have any affiliation with him. But Liddell King was looking for Chris, and Julius didn't really know where he was at at the time, so, you know, he tells him, like, I don't know where he's at. And Liddell King then asked Julius, like, if he would do him a favor And he says, if you help me move this truck, you know, I'll give you something. And Julius understood that as he was going to get some money out of the deal. And he was super hesitant at first. And he states that this is because he could tell that, you know, Liddell King was into some unseemly things. And he didn't really know if it was a good idea. But overall, he decided, you know, it's fine, whatever. He wanted some money. He's a college student. We all needed money makes sense and so he said sure I'll follow you and so as previously said we talked about the goldish brown GMC Suburban and this is the car that Liddell King was trying to move and Julius actually never even got into the Suburban but he followed the Liddell King in King's vehicle they drove to the central grocery store and dropped off the car and this was on the south side of Oklahoma City and after they dropped off their car they drove over to Kermit Lottie's Chop Shop, which was just a couple blocks down the street, and Julia stayed in the car the whole entire time. But Liddell King went inside of the Chop Shop and talked to Kermit Lottie about buying the car or selling the car for him. And once he came out, he told Julius, man, he doesn't want it. There's a body on the truck or something. And Julius was absolutely shocked. He states that he knew what he was doing was wrong, but He had absolutely no idea that there was somebody who was dead because of it. And so Liddell then asked again, man, where do you think Chris is at? And 
still Julius has no idea. So they drive around for a little bit and then they finally get to the Mecklenburg Recreational Center. And this is where they found Chris and Liddell King had gone in before Julius. And when he made his way into the gym, Liddell and Chris were having sort of like a super secretive, serious conversation just in the corner of the gym. And Julius states then that he had no doubt that these two were involved in this crime. And he also kind of states that it was probably his biggest downfall that he didn't actually go to the police right then. But where he grew up, he was not supposed to be telling other people's business because bad things could have happened to him. Uh, And he also says that these people set him up to take the fall because they knew somebody was going to fry for this. And he was kind of an outsider in this whole entire friendship. Like I said previously, he did not really know Liddell King at all, and he was not very close with Chris Jordan, so I feel like they used that against him and to their benefit, basically. So, later that evening, so we're still Thursday, July 29th, 1999, Chris Jordan shows up at the Jones residence and says that he is locked out of his grandmother's house and that he needed a place to stay. And Chris Jordan had never spent the night before with Julius, ever, But Julius, being the kind person that he is, you know, offered him a place to stay and even slept on the couch that night and let Chris Jordan take his room. And Julius's sister and his brother both remember seeing Chris Jordan in the house that night. Specifically, Julius's sister heard him in Julius's old bedroom upstairs. And this is where things can get kind of misconstrued. And so I'm going to explain that I believe that this is when the gun was planted because he was upstairs in the Jones residence, but we will talk about that later. So, 1.40 a.m., Friday, July 30th, so this is two days after the murder, the police stumble upon the GMC Suburban parked at the Central Grocery Store on the south side of Oklahoma City. Police then head a couple blocks down to the road to Kermit Lottie's Chop Shop and ask him about it because they kind of knew that it was a desirable vehicle that could be chopped up and sold for a lot of money and they knew that that's what he was known for so they go and talk to him and he told the police that Day Day or Liddell King had been trying to sell the Suburban to him and Liddell King was very well known for car thefts all around the metro area. He even once told a police officer that he would use a large magnet and he would rub it across the hood to not like scratch the paint and this would disengage the car alarm, making it super easy for him to achieve all of these car thefts. That same day at 2.32 p.m., Liddell King is brought in for questioning by the admin police, and he provided a tape-recorded statement at this time, and he stated that he was just the middleman in this whole scenario. And this is not his actual statement, but it's kind of a breakdown of what he had to say about that evening. And he states that on the night of the crime, Chris Jordan, or Westside, comes to his apartment around 9.45 p.m. to 10 p.m. He hears loud music outside of his apartment, he goes outside, and he sees that Chris Jordan is driving a cutlass that was goldish brown. He states that a few minutes later, Julius drives up in a gold GMC Suburban. How convenient. He states that when Julius steps out of the vehicle, he is wearing a red bandana around his neck, a stocking cap, and a white t-shirt that he was allegedly trying to change out of at the time. Once again, how convenient. Julius then states that the Suburban was stolen and that he needed Liddell King to sell it for him. And the next day in his statement, so this is Thursday after 
the murder, so just a day after the murder, Liddell King takes the Suburban to Kermit Lottie's chop shop, and Kermit told Liddell, like, this vehicle is connected to a homicide right now, so I'm not going to take it. And Liddell went home, turned on the news, and realizes that it's the same Suburban that Julius had supposedly gotten out of, once again. How convenient. And then later this night, so still Thursday, the day after the murder, in his statement, Liddell tells Julius and Chris Jordan that he knows that Julius shot that man at Edmund, and then Julius supposedly states, man, okay, the door just came open and the gun went off. So, same day, Friday, July 30th, 1999, at 3.52 p.m., Julius gets a call at his mother and father's home, and it is the Edmund police asking to speak to him. And he says that Julius isn't there, hangs up, and goes out of the back door and begins walking. Once he has reached 119th Street, he sees Chris Jordan and assumes that Jordan is heading back to the Jones home. And he gets in the car with Jordan and tells him that the police just called looking for him. And Jordan tells him, you know, don't worry about it, man. Just go warn my brothers that the police are looking for us. Which Julius took as the police were looking for Jordan and his brothers, not Julius and Jordan. And Julius goes to warn Jordan's brothers. At 3.55 p.m., the house phone at the Jones residence rang again, and Julius's sister, Antoinette, answers the phone, and a cop said that he needed to speak to Julius, but he had already left, so she tells him that, and she tells him that, like, his parents aren't available right now either because they're upstairs getting ready for a class reunion. When Julius's father goes downstairs and opens the front door, his porch is covered in cops with their guns out. Uh, The whole family, minus Julius, walks out of the home with their hands up in the air, and Antoinette, his sister, states that it was so scary that if she wanted to cry, she couldn't have. And at this time, the police really couldn't enter the home due to a lack of warrant, but they still, you know, got everybody out of the home. At 4.44 p.m., lots of cops, lots of media, and lots of photographers are lining up the street and surrounding the Jones residence. Jimmy Lawson, Julius's best friend, came home to all of this and couldn't even get to his house. Um, they grew up on the same block together and their dads coached together and they were really good friends and he couldn't even get to his house and he was shocked to find out that it was Julius's house that they were sitting there trying to get into at that time. And at 6.30 p.m., the police finally track down Chris Jordan, and they find him at a payphone not far from Liddell King's apartment. And he's taken into police custody, where they drive him to the home of the Jones family and basically just interrogate him there, kind of. But this is where it is believed that he kind of gives them an idea as to where this gun might be hiding in the house. The gun that killed Paul Howe. At 10 p.m., the tactical team enters the Jones house with a warrant and they try to find Julius, but obviously he isn't in the home. They then do a methodical search and literally just completely wreck the house. There is clothes all over the ground. Everything was thrown everywhere, basically just completely flipped upside down. They even, like, got condiments all over the floor, like ketchup and mustard, as if that's necessary. It's not. You could obviously tell how they felt about this case through how they acted out this methodical search. Um, And they came out of the house with a gun wrapped in a red bandana. Once again, how convenient. 
Yeah, it had been found in the second story closet crawl space. Um, and this obviously looked very bad for Julius. They have Kermit Lottie who's saying that Liddell King tried to sell him the vehicle. And then they have Liddell King saying that it was Julius who tried to sell him or try to get him to sell that vehicle. And so it's all just kind of lining up to be very bad for Julius. Later that night at Jordan's brother's apartment where Julius is like hiding basically, um, which he wasn't really hiding at the time. He was just warning Jordan's brothers of the situation that we had talked about earlier when he saw him on 119th Street. And so he's sitting on the couch and it was all over the news that the police were at his house and that they had found a gun and a bandana. And Julius states that he was completely blindsided. He says, I mean, flabbergasted. I am blown away. Where did all of this come from? He states that he had absolutely nothing to do with this robbery or this man's life being taken. So Saturday at 6.30 a.m., July 31st, 1999, this is three days after the murder had occurred, so very quickly, Julius wakes up and there are police everywhere telling him not to move. He didn't have shoes on. He didn't have a shirt on. He literally didn't even have socks on his feet. And the police pick him up out of bed and basically arrest him there because they had gotten a tip that he was at Jordan's brother's apartment. And so they went and got him. The detectives told Julius in the car, you know, you're going to fry. And then they high fived each other as if they had just achieved this ginormous accomplishment. And that's when Julius asked to speak to his mother and asked for a lawyer. After his arrest, the police didn't have an official statement from Chris Jordan to corroborate with Liddell King's story about Julius, so they couldn't quite convict him yet. And the lead detectives, Teresa Pfeiffer and Tony Fike, wanted Jordan to confirm the narrative that Liddell had told them. So Saturday at 6 p.m., same day when Julius was arrested, about 12 hours later, Detectives interview Chris Jordan and get an official statement. He tells police that him and Julius were looking for a Suburban and had followed Goldish Brown Suburban from the Brahms parking lot into a neighborhood. He then states that Julius got out of the vehicle, walked to the Howell residence, and shot Paul Howell in his driveway. Uh, He is all over during this interview, basically just messing up consistently he keeps saying I instead of Julius when giving his narrative and he also says he didn't touch the gun and then he says that he did touch the gun he says he did see Paul Howe fall on the ground and then he says that he didn't he was just all over the place very inconsistent it didn't really make sense at all and the detectives even went as far as asking him like are you sure we even have the right guy and you didn't in fact shoot Paul Howe and I feel like that just says a lot about his testimony and how it just should not have been really taken as seriously as it was. Teresa Pfeiffer is kind of important along with Tony Fike. They really just made all of these false informant testimonies just kind of corroborate with one another and that's how they convicted Julius Jones. Uh, But she started as an undercover investigator and then she became a detective for homicide And her and Tony Fike actually refused to even let Chris Jordan see his attorney or speak to him before they got his statement because they knew that the attorney would have told him not to talk. And they needed Chris Jordan's narrative to match Liddell King so that they could convict Julius. It was a very 
fast-paced case because it was a very well-known white businessman in Edmond in 1999 where a lot of racism was going on, I would say. Basically, all of the white people from Oklahoma City had moved to Edmond to kind of go to, what's the word, segregated schools and not be, I don't know, around danger and crime and all sorts of stuff, which, whatever. And so, it was just a very big deal that Paul Howe, very known, like, very well-known businessman, is shot by an African-American male in his driveway. So, it was very fast-paced and they wanted to get somebody in and they wanted to do it fast. After Chris Jordan's statement, where he corroborated the stories, Jordan was convicted with murder in the first degree and conspiracy, and Jones was convicted with murder in the first degree, possession of a firearm, conspiracy, and there was a request for the death penalty. Now, there's a lot of misconceptions about Julius and Jordan's relationship, and it's just very unfair to his case because they really, like, did not know each other very well at all. Uh, people like to believe that they were together that whole entire day, and in Julius's words, people think that they were as thick as thieves, which is just not the case at all. They knew one another through basketball, but Julius never even hung out with him throughout high school or even when he first went to college. He didn't even see Jordan after high school again until early 1999 where Jordan basically told him in passing that he didn't pass the ACT test and because of that he couldn't go to school yet and Julius had taken tests for people before and so he decided you know I could use some extra money I'll take your test for you so he did that but he did not think that Julius or he didn't think that Jordan would be friends with him past the summer and it was more of a convenience of Julius needed a ride and Chris Jordan needed some help with his scores. We're going to fast forward a couple of years to February 14th, 2002, and this is going to be the first day of Julius's trial, and this was one of the most high-profile cases in the country of that year. It was a very big deal that this was happening. Like I said, very well-known person, lots of racism. They wanted it done quickly, and it was very big that it was done correctly. Um, and so Sandra Elliott was the lead prosecutor alongside District Attorney Bob Macy, who is also known as Cowboy Bob. And I'm going to tell you some statistics on Bob Macy because he's a very scary man and I would not want to be faced with the death penalty and be going up against him in court. So he had about 44 murderers put on death row, 30,000 felons sent to prison, 15,000 juvenile or gang crimes that were prosecuted, 85,000 criminal cases prosecuted, and he was actually the district attorney for the Oklahoma County from the 1980s all the way until 2001. He had been described as one of the five most deadliest prosecutors in the United States. Like I said, scary man. He had sent 54 people to death row, but over half of those cases were reversed, and this was because of misconduct forensic scientists not being truthful during their testimonies, and false informant testimonies. False informant testimonies. Big deal, especially in Julius' case, so pay attention to that. Um, and Julius was actually assigned his first attorney 
um, whose family kind of had a lot of faith in. They thought he was very thorough. He was very competent. They thought he would do a really good job for Julius, but he actually sadly passed away shortly before the trial was supposed to even begin. And after this, David McKenzie was the lead trial attorney for Julius, and he had no death penalty trial experience. He was a public defender, so he had a lot of cases. He didn't really have the time or the effort to help Julius, and he really screwed him over in this case, and it's very upsetting. And Robin Bruno was his second trial attorney, and she was actually still in law school during this trial, which is crazy. And she had never tried a capital case before, and she had only observed one. So, as you can tell, it was an uphill struggle from the very, very beginning of his trial. According to Julius, he actually never even, like, really saw David McKenzie. Uh, he never really got asked anything by him, and his interactions were very short. He didn't really feel like David McKenzie is really preparing for his trial in the way that he should have been. Robin, however, was there often talking to Julius, and, you know, she states that he did not keep his company very well, but she does not think that he killed Paul Howe at all. Uh, Julius actually had an alibi, his whole family, who could vouch for him being there that entire night. Uh, he was home, 21 miles away from where the murder occurred. He wouldn't have had enough time to get there. It just wouldn't make sense. Um, and the defense brought up the lack of evidence in this case, how there was basically no fingerprints found on the car that were belonging to Julius Jones. They also never even tested the bandana for DNA. This is just insane. Did you hear that? They never tested the bandana for DNA. How could they even know it was Julius's? Um, and Megan Toby, Hal's sister, the one who was the only eyewitness of the crime, actually testified during this trial and reiterated the fact that he was wearing a stocking cap, red bandana, and she also made sure to talk about how he had an inch to an inch and a half of hair sticking out of the stocking cap. She never changed that. He had longer hair. And this is extremely crucial because Julius actually had short hair. Like, very short, little buzz cut. Like, literally, he did not have long hair sticking out of a stocking cap. And he wouldn't have because 10 days prior to Hal's murder, Julius had actually been picked up by the police for reckless driving. And no charges were filed. But there was an official government booking photo taken of him. Um, and his hair was short, so it wouldn't have been possible that his hair would have grown that fast. And David McKenzie basically states this in his cross-examination of Hal's sister. Uh, he discusses the hair with her, basically confirms that what she saw was longer hair and that it couldn't have been Julius, but he completely failed Julius and did not even present the booking photo in court. He did not even prove that his statements were true. He didn't give the jury a physical visual at all. And so that just really screwed him over. Like, how are you going to just trust what he says, I guess, when there's not a picture to prove it? <sighs> I digress. So February 15th, second day of the trial. This is where Liddell King testified for the prosecution. He states that Julius approached him that night of the murder and asked him, you know, how to get rid of the GMC Suburban, and then Liddell King attempted to sell the vehicle to Kermit Lottie. He also said that Julius confessed to him about shooting Paul Howe, 
And video surveillance was showed of Julius and Liddell King in the central grocery store this day during the trial. And obviously that looks really bad for Julius. But as we know, in his perspective of things, the things that actually happened, he was only at the central grocery store because he was helping Liddell King with that favor. And he never even got out of the suburban or in the suburban. But he was at the central grocery store and I imagine they went in after dropping the car off and got something and then left. So he is seen on surveillance with Liddell King that day because that's the day that he did the favor for him. February 20th, the fourth day of the trial. This is when Kermit Lottie testifies to the court against Julius and Actually, when he's doing this, it comes to light that he had his own criminal charges, and those were pending federal drug charges. He was waiting to be sentenced, and he was looking at up to 40 years. Um, It was stated that his sentence was not reduced for his testimony in this trial, and it was literally, like, a big thing. It was proven that he did not do that. But then, after Julius was convicted... It was learned that Detective Tony Fike had actually written a letter to the prosecuting U.S. attorney in Kermit Lottie's case in which he asked for leniency and basically said that if it weren't for Kermit Lottie providing his statement, the case could still be unsolved today for Paul Howe. And so that should just really make your blood boil because that is just unfair. Basically just making people falsely testify and they get something out of it, and Julius goes to prison for the rest of his life and gets the death penalty. But I digress again. <laughs> February 21st, 2002. This is the fifth day of the trial. This is when Chris Jordan comes into the courtroom. He has shackles on, his jumpsuit on, and in his testimony, he stated that he was supposed to drive the car when they picked someone out. He stated that him and Julius followed a Suburban into a neighborhood in Edmond, parked a significant distance away from the driveway. Julius got out and went to the Suburban, and then he states that he heard gunshots but did not see Julius shoot Mr. Howe. And both him and Liddell King basically had the same story at this point, that Julius was a shooter and he was the one who committed this crime, and so they corroborated with one another, and basically it was working out for the prosecuting side of things. Uh, His testimony, though, was very inconsistent with what he had told police originally. In his original testimony, he does not say that he only heard shots. He distinctly says, no, sir, I seen the man fall to the ground, sir. Um, And the defense lined out all of his statements and basically kind of walked him through it and had him explain the differences between the two, how he wasn't really telling the truth, but... His cross-examination was a disaster. David McKenzie literally just botched the whole thing. He says that he did a horrible job cross-examining him and that he could have exploited his credibility a lot further and shown him to be a liar. And he basically just says, I don't know why I didn't do good that day. And basically just says, oh, well, um, to this guy's life just being thrown away to prison, which is very unfair. Literally, in his original testimony to the detectives, Chris Jordan, he was saying things like, I, he had the gun, or I, he said, I remember him saying, or saying, I, where Julia should have been. It's just all very inconsistent, and it shouldn't have worked out, and he could have just obliterated him on stand, but he chose not to. 
February 22nd, 2002, the sixth day of the trial, the state gave their side of the case when it was time for the defense to put on their side of the case. The lead attorney, David McKenzie, stood up and said, the defense rests. Yeah, that's all he said. He did not let Julius tell his side of the story. And this completely blindsided Julius. He then whispered to him and said, well, we're not going to call any witnesses. And Julius was shocked that he didn't get to testify, didn't get to share his side of things. And basically, like, he had nobody there to back up his story. And that just is not fair. David McKenzie also states the alibi wouldn't have worked because it was just the family's word. And apparently, Julius had written a letter to his girlfriend in between the time that he got into jail and when the trial happened, stating that he was not actually home during the time of the murder, but that he was on the, somewhere in the south side of Oklahoma City. Uh, he believed that his family was trying to give him a false alibi, and so he just didn't put it on in the case. And Robin Bruno was really upset with this. She said that they should have used the alibi because it was the only thing that the jury could have held on to, but she was not very high up on the food chain, so she could not make drastic decisions like that, like David McKenzie could. Julius states that he was on the south side eventually that evening, but it wasn't until hours after leaving his parents' house, and he didn't even leave their house until 11 to 11.30, like we previously discussed, when the murder happened. So, Julius also states that he never even wrote her a letter stating where he was at or whatever, anything about the murder, basically. And in 2004, Julius's girlfriend actually said in an affidavit that Julius never even told her that he was on the south side at the time of the shooting, never even discussed his whereabouts about the time of the murder, and she states that none of his lawyers spoke to her prior to the trial against Julius. Are you kidding me? Never even spoke to her. And when David McKenzie was asked about this, he couldn't even give a reason as to why he wouldn't have reached out to her before the trial because it was his job. And he basically just says, whoops, again. And because of this, Julius' side of things were never shared and he wasn't allowed an alibi, which is just so shitty if you ask me. That's not fair at all. But once again, I digress. So mad. Sorry. February 25th, 2002, the seventh day of the trial, Sandra Elliott does her closing argument saying terrible things about Julius and who he was as a person, and the jury was also mainly white. There was only one African-American juror, and this is also another shitty thing. There was a lot of racial issues involved in his jury, so other African-Americans were struck by prosecution for various reasons, like the person was a crime victim or knew somebody in law enforcement, but white jurors who had the same exact issues were allowed to sit in on his jury. It also came out later when talking about his jury, there was actually a juror who came out anonymously and spoke about the situations that happened during his trial. And there was one juror specifically who basically stated that they needed to kill in word and bury him in front of the jail and it was way before deliberation it was way before anything really substantial happened in the trial and so as you can see a lot of them had their mind made up already and that is also not fair and when the judge was spoken to about this they basically said you know 
It's not going to change the outcome of his trial. And I completely disagree with that. And I think that's complete bullshit. Bullshit. But that's just a little tidbit I needed to add in there. And in 2005, actually, Julius's appellate attorney raised issue that this had happened, but the appeals court really just dismissed the claim and said it wouldn't have changed the outcome of his case, and I disagree. Sandra Elliott, during the last day of the trial, walked up to a juror at one time and put her hand against their head as if it were a gun, Um, and this is clearly just prohibited under Oklahoma law. You're not allowed to just scare, like, to scare the jury, but that's what she was doing. And the defense actually asked for a mistrial, and it was denied, and the appeals court basically found that the demonstration by the prosecutor was not so egregious as to deprive Julius of a fair sentencing proceeding. The jury deliberated for only three to five hours, and after this, they came out and said that Julius was guilty of murder in the first degree, and that there was going to be a death penalty. Uh, Julius really just was upset obviously but he was still very like supportive and was kind to his team that completely let him down in his case he even gave his pocket square to robin bruno because she was absolutely like sobbing after the verdict came out and he told her you know it's going to be okay but he states also that once the cameras were off of him he could no longer contain the emotions that were inside of him and he had never felt so abandoned by God in his life. He was just completely alone. And he was put into prison when he was 19 years old and was given a death penalty. <sighs> okay, so now we're going to talk about the very sad ending to this case and wrongful conviction. So Julius has sadly used up all of his appeals, so he can't really go any further with legal action to try and get out of his sentencing. Um, And after the trial, a lot of things did come out, like how Chris Jordan apparently was not given any leniency with his sentencing, and that is just completely not true. Tony Fike, like I mentioned previously, did send a letter to the U.S. attorney that was trying to prosecute Chris Jordan on that and asked for leniency, and he was supposed to be serving 30 years but instead he only served 15 years on the dot. So he was released from prison in December of 2014. And Kermit Lottie, who was supposed to be serving 40 years for federal drug drug charges, he only served four years because of his testimony. And he actually was proven to falsely testify in somebody else's case who was also given the death penalty and was in prison for life, and that's Paris Powell, but he was actually exonerated because of false informant testimonies, and Julius just wasn't given the same kind of, I don't even know, the same kind of treatment, I guess. He, it was just said that it wouldn't have changed the trial, whatever, and Liddell King, he was an informant for the admin police, so his testimony was very crucial to the case too. Uh, He actually had a bogus check charge and was convicted. He was a convicted felon with three prior felonies, so he was required to serve at least 20 years, but his whole thing was just dismissed entirely because of his testimony. Just let that sink in. So they used three different informants who falsely testified and had it to where they would all corroborate with each other 
just to convict Julius, and it's not fair at all, and his story was never even told. That's why I think it's very important to share his story, because that is just not fair. Governor Stitt, though, in 2021, did actually commute Julius's sentence right before his execution date, or it was his execution date, four hours before he was supposed to be executed. Uh, His sentence was commuted to just life in prison with no parole, but that still is not good enough for him or his family because he does not deserve to be there at all. He has been there since he was 19, and now he's in his 40s, and that is just not fair. His whole entire life has been spent in prison for something he did not do. That is not okay. (sighs) He's been in prison longer than I've even been alive. That's just not fair at all. And it does not only affect him. It affected his family a lot, too. Obviously, they're very upset with this. That was their brother that they can no longer see, their son that they can no longer see or be around. And he was on the up and up in college about to start his sophomore year, and it was all taken away from him and his family. And I would say it probably affects his mom the most, obviously. That's her child. But... It's just not fair. It's not fair what everybody was put through with this trial. And that is that on Julius Jones and Paul Howe. Sorry if I got a little heated. It's an upsetting case. And then what else do I have for you? I have a small little important announcement at the very end. And then you're free to go. Thanks for listening. Okay, this is the important announcement. I was watching TikTok and I found this video, stumbled upon it. This girl was posting about her missing sister who has only been missing for about like 48 hours, so very recently. Um, Her name is Justice Francis and I'm going to just kind of give you a little bit of information about where she was last seen, her description, and kind of like a little bit of details about the case. There's really not much information at all. But she is 17, 5'6", 170 pounds. She has green eyes and brown hair. She was last seen on Thursday, the 21st of July, 2022, at 7 p.m. near East Rock Creek and South Peeble Road in Norman, Oklahoma. She was last seen wearing black shorts, a black holster top, and sandals. She has not been seen or heard from since, and if you know her whereabouts, please contact the Norman Police Department at 405-321-1600. And then you can also contact the Cleveland Cleveland County where her case is at, and that number is 405-701-8888. Um, her campsite, her phone was there, her wallet was there, and all of her clothes were there, so it does not seem as though she was trying to leave. I don't think that she would have left all of that stuff there, and that's what her sister says too. Um, And they really have no information. So if you live in the Oklahoma area, look out for that or look up the case, see what she looks like, get an idea. And yeah, thanks. Thank you so much for listening to my first episode of the Not So Grateful Dead podcast. I'm so excited. This journey is going to be so much fun. Um, I have kind of have it in my schedule to probably be posting new episodes every Wednesday. That's what I'm going to try to achieve. 
Um, I'm not really sure when this one's going to come out, like what day of the week, but Wednesday is what I'm planning on doing for new episodes. So yeah, I'm so excited. Thank you again. This is a dream come true. I can't wait to do this. Bye-bye.